I'll let you just bow our heads in a moment of prayer as we prepare. God, our Heavenly Father, it amazes us that you have chosen this means to bring your word to your people, the foolishness of preaching. But as we come, Lord, and we exercise our minds with regard to your word, we just ask that you would guide and direct us, that your Holy Spirit would overrule, that he would guide my thoughts and my words, and that, Lord, you would feed your people, that you would enrich them in their faith, and that we, Lord, would bow before you in wonder, love and praise. Oh, Father, be with us, we ask, because we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. The passage I want to share with you this morning is from Ephesians in chapter 4 and verses 22 and 24. It's a message that I shared with the folk in Papakura where we are at the moment uh, last week and uh, a message appropriate to hopefully to the new year. Um, they asked me to do something and to prepare for the new year and, and this is um, what the Lord laid on my heart. And so I thought it would be appropriate for us to do it here being the first Sunday in, in a new year. And so Ephesians chapter 4 verse 22 to 24 In reference to your former manner of life Paul says you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now in the verses that precede our text, Paul has been talking about what it means to live as a believer. And it's important for us to see that he does not talk about living uh, as, as a believer by living in another world. He doesn't say that we should take our minds and put them in the clouds or that we should secrete ourselves to a monastery to separate ourselves from the world. This is one of the great things about our faith, our Christian faith. It is a faith that is to be worked out in real life, in this world. And it deals with me as I really am. It deals with me as a sinner in a real world. We are not escapists trying to bury our heads in the sands of unreality, as the mystics do. Now Paul outlines the implications for us at the beginning of the chapter when he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk or to live in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have a responsibility 
in this world as Christians to live a life that is worthy of the calling that we have in Christ. And the question arises, how are we to do this? Well, Behold describes for us the way when he says in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. As I said earlier, this is a good time of the year to ask ourselves, are we doing this? And if we're not, then now is a good time to make a determined effort to pursue those principles in our lives. And the first thing Paul refers to in this chapter is the means by which we may pursue this objective are the gifts that the Lord has given to the church. He says that he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And the end that he has in view is to attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. This is the objective that we have in the church. The gifts that the Lord Jesus gives to us in the church. We no longer have apostles and prophets, not like the New Testament prophets, inspired prophets, but we do have their message recorded for us in the Word. And one of the ways we are to understand this Word is for it to be explained by those who are pastors and teachers. They are God's gift, Christ's gift to his body. They are to equip the saints for the work of service, to build up the body of Christ to maturity, to the measure of the stature or the maturity that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The maturity that is to be found in him, in his character, as we understand the truth about him. A maturity that gives us stability in our faith, and prevents us from being tossed about by every new fashion of doctrine that comes into the church. Because we are striving towards a maturity in knowledge that leads to a change of character. And this is the principal work of the leaders of the church. To build up the church in its faith to encourage the maturity that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and each of its members. Now it's important at the outset to understand that this maturity is not dependent on doctrine, on a doctrinal unity. There are many who would suggest that it is. And I am always unhappy when a new person comes to the church, to a church, any church, and your hand is shaken and the first thing they ask you, 
Are you premillennial? <laughs> Are you reformed? The question they should be asking when you come into the church, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? I can remember sitting down with a, a man who was quite well known, written many books, and I visited him because we shared many of the same doctrines. And I sat down with him to talk with him and, and have fellowship with him. And he asked me the question, what's the basis of Christian unity? And that I said, a man or a woman loves the Lord Jesus Christ. If they love the Lord Jesus Christ, they are my brother and sister in the faith. No, no, he said, it's the creed. And that was the end of fellowship. It's important for us to understand what the unity of our faith is built on. Now having said that, having said that, I want to say this. You can have faith without a lot of knowledge. Just as you can have an acorn without having an oak tree. But plant that acorn of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the field of good doctrine about the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will have a Christian growing to maturity. If you plant it in bad doctrine, you have somebody who's going to be wandering all over the place in their faith and they will have no security in Christ at all. So I'm not saying that good doctrine is not important. It is important. And that's why I hold the views that I do, because I believe that they glorify God and they lead me to a proper view of the Lord Jesus Christ and a proper attitude towards Him. But there is a priority in our relationship together and as individuals, and that priority is Christ-likeness. So Paul says in verse 16, we must speak the truth to one another and we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted together and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. And this causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Every believer is to contribute to the life of the local church to which they have committed themselves. But now I might rattle a few cages. Hmm? This unit... <laughs> but this, but this, priori- this contribution that we are to make to the local church, each one of us, is not primarily our gifts, as the popular emphasis is. But we are to contribute to the local congregation by our attitude. That's what we are to bring to the congregation of God's people. No exceptions. The responsibility that each of us has into in the church is to strive to be like the Lord Jesus. And again I say, no exceptions. That's our goal. It's the devil's deceit that subtly turns our attention 
from first principles to things of lesser importance, to substitute activities for Christ-likeness, to substitute gifts for Christ-likeness. But the maturity, Paul says, we are to strive for above all else is the imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now having dealt with our personal responsibilities to our local church community, Paul now turns to those things which are essential if we as individuals are to achieve those ends. What are we to be involved in as Christians? And he says, well, in reference to your former manner of life, you are to lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. That's the first step. We are to strive, all of us, for the same goal. And it's sharing this goal that results in the unity of of which Paul speaks here in this passage. In a mature congregation, we may not always see things the same way, but the end in view is always the same, to be like the Lord Jesus. It is the goal God has in mind for every one of us. This is made clear in his word. It's not something that I've made up for you this morning. When young people come to me and ask me, what is go- I, I, I'm, I'm struggling, I want to find God's will for my life. I, said that, I would say to them, that's the easiest question to answer that you could have given me. What is God's will for your life? Well, God's will in, for our lives is recorded in a passage that's often misquoted and misapplied. In Romans 8:28 and 29. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. That's God's will for your life. that you should be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the good that God has got in mind when he works all things together. He works all things together in your life to make you more like his Son. Not more comfortable, not with less pain, but to make you more like the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a break to be made with the old life. We are to have a new objective in our life. Essential to this objective is that we proceed to lay aside that old self that dominated us in the past. Well, what does this break with the old self entail? First port of call is usually to make a list of rules of do's and don'ts. If you want to be a good Christian, then you must do this and this and this. In the old days, it was you didn't, as Baptists in New Zealand, you didn't go dancing. 
You didn't go to dances. That, that was one of the strict rules. You could go to the cinema, which I could never understand because you just sit and soak everything in that you see. But you can't go to dances where you can sit on the side and resist and not participate if you don't want to. But you see, these are what we do. We, we, when we think about being a good Christian, the first thing, place we go is that list of do's and don'ts. Hmm? But Colossians, and Paul in Colossians says, do not, the, the list he, he refers to, he says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. But he makes it clear that this break with the old life involves much more than this, than just do's and don'ts. And to make his point, he says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of this world, why as if you were living in the world, that is, if you were living in a worldly community and not a Christian one, do you submit yourselves to, the, to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Why? Because in most occasions, they justify indulging the flesh. How is that? Because they encourage me to look at myself and to be proud of my achievements. They encourage me to look at what other people think of me. Look how well I keep the, these things. I don't go to cinema. I, I, I don't go to dances. I may go to the cinema occasionally. I don't do this and I don't do that. I'm a good Christian. Look at me. That's indulging the flesh. That's becoming a Pharisee. Because that's just what they did. And Paul said that we should live above these things. You can conform to lists of rules and meet the perceived expectations of other people in the church without their ever having been a real change within and end up saying to myself, thank God I'm not like other men, especially the sinners in our community. We are being deceived by our own opinion of ourselves as Paul suggests to us here in our passage. We're being deceived by our own hearts. With this attitude we may have the appearance of being a Christian, but there is no substance of real faith, no likeness, no true likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul calls the corruption in accordance with the lusts of deceit. He's not talking about lusting after other women or after other men or indulging the flesh in the excesses. He's talking about domination by our appetites. I'll deal with that in a little minute. So 
So Paul says to us in Ephesians 4.17, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Or as he says, among them we too formerly lived in chapter 2, in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. We are to put that off and to put on the new. So then the break is made and in reference to our former manner of life you are to lay aside the old self which has been corrupted in accordance with those desires a life of being deceived by self-centred appetites and desires. So what's involved then in putting on the new? Well, we find it in Romans. Paul gives us a good picture there in Romans 12, 1 and 2, when he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This this is what you should be in ordinary life. This is the way that you worship God. That you present yourselves as a living sacrifice. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In short, you are to lay aside that self-interested way of thinking by which I have been deceived, and to replace it with a new way of thinking. To lay aside a mindset that makes me think I am more important than what I am and to put on a new way of thinking. And this brings us face to face with the great battle of the Christian life. God's gift of faith is to be worked out in a reluctant body. Paul is telling us to lay aside a mindset that is in fact dominated by the deception of this old body. The dominion of our fallen appetites. Now, one of the things we have to understand when we deal with this is that we are by faith made perfect in Christ. You know that? I am perfect. You're perfect, wonder of wonder. In Christ. That's what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 1. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And he gets so excited about it in chapter 1 that he writes a whole chapter without full stops or commas. The guy who was taking it down, I feel sorry for him. But do we get excited about the same things? Of that perfection that we have in Christ, forgiveness of sins, redemption, adoption, glorification, that I can come before God as a sinner and be accepted because I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But now we come to the dilemma. I'm perfect in Him. But those of you who know me, and especially my wife, and those of you who know you, 
know that that's not a reality in this life. That I'm anything but perfect. And that's because the gift of new life that God has given me in regeneration and in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is deposited in an old body that's reluctant. Hmm? Now Paul deals with this in the practical side of things in Romans 7. And he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For I am, what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now, is he a Paul, as some suggest, excusing sin? Well, as I understand Paul in, in his writings, not at all. He's not excusing sin. What then? Shall we say, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? And what I say him seeing here is that we have God's gift of faith of new life in the Holy Spirit in a reluctant body. A body still under the influence of the curse. A body that still gets tired, still gets hungry and craves for its appetites to be satisfied. I can guarantee I know when you get tired. Every time you try to pray. There's a reluctance in the old body. It's there. And every time we want to exercise anything of any spiritual worth, it shows itself. That's why Paul says, I keep my body under subjection. But what are we to do with this this, this, um, old body? Well, look, before I go there. This is the reason when we go to the Word that we see David lusting when he should have been carrying out his responsibilities. It's the reason we see the disciples sleeping when they should have been watching with the Lord Jesus in prayer. It's the reason that we see Euodia and Syntyche arguing in the church and dividing the church because they have given way to their old appetites, their old way of thinking. They have made themselves more important in their thinking than they ought to have been. Doctrines never divide a healthy church. They only divide truth from error. What divides a church is bad attitudes. And that's just what Euodia and Syntyche were displaying here. People who had given way, let their own old appetites dominate the way that they were thinking. Even as redeemed people, 
the old body is still with us so that I cannot reach the heights of worship and service I would aspire to. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please, that you would desire to do. In this life, all of us, have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Even the good things that we do are tainted by that old attitude, by the old appetites. But Paul is not just talking here about things that I do, but he's talking about the motive behind my choices. So when Paul says, lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, this is what he means. Changing the way that we think. It is something that, we must, that, that must take place in my innermost being. A change in my affections. You see, I can appear to be like a Christian by obeying all the rules and all I am doing is making myself acceptable to other people, trying to cover up the old life that still dominates my thinking, to cover it with the flimsy clothes of pretense. So that everybody thinks that I'm a good Christian. Well, I can tell you this morning, I know that I hesitate to use the word good Christian because good Christian is somebody who's relying on the Lord Jesus, but I know that you're a sinner. I know that you're a sinner because the word tells me that you're a sinner. And it tells me that the treasures that God has given you, you've got in an earthen vessel. And there's no point in pretending otherwise. And the fellowship that we have together is to aid one another in this battle. And I'm certainly not going to help anybody if I'm prancing around the place pretending that I'm superior to somebody else. When I'm not. Paul requires more than that, much more. We are to put on a new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Something that happens inside. Now how I'm to do this seems to be impossible. Seems to be beyond us. Am I to despise my body like the Greeks? And like the old Roman Catholic priest used to do and like Luther did, beating himself on the back and starving himself to almost to death. Or the opposite extreme, to indulge the body so much that we kill it with its own uh, desires, with its own efforts. Not at all. The body is fallen, but it's precious. It is God-given. It is created in the likeness of God. Created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. It is to be redeemed, it is to be resurrected and to be renewed, to be glorified, to be like Christ. 
this body. Well then, how am I in this life to put on this new self? Well, Paul says, I am to begin with my mind. To be renewed in the spirit of my mind. And the tense here indicates not a one-time happening, but a continuous renewing of your mind. You know, there are some who teach that it is a one-time happening. It's, it's, a, it's a, a, a one-time blessing, and then from then on you're perfect. Some of our young people in South Africa were in a car, and the man believed this, and they were, they were wags and, and uh, incorrigible in many ways. But they were sitting in the car, and he was driving them to a camp, and they noticed that his speedo had gone over the limit. And he was telling them how he had never sinned since that time that he was blessed. And of course, you know what happened. Yeah. And then they didn't let it go there. He made excuse for it and he said, no, 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 no. They said, you can't make excuse for that. That's sin. And before very long, they had him losing his temper. <laughs> and uh, hopefully he learned the lesson. Hmm. But Paul, Paul is saying here, it's not a one-time experience. It is something that is continuous. It's something that we have to keep on renewing our minds in this way of thinking. Paul says the same thing in Romans 12, 1 and 2 that we read together. The renewing of the mind and the presenting of our bodies as a living sacrifice. Two things are involved here the presenting of our bodies as a sacrifice of service and the renewing of our mind. It is the second I want us to concentrate on, the transforming of our minds, because that's where it all begins. Where does it begin? When I want to put on a new way of thinking, where does it begin? Well, If we follow Paul's reasoning, it begins with the mercies of God. Romans 12. By the mercies of God, I beseech you, present your bodies a living sacrifice. It begins with the gospel. It begins with grace. It begins with recognizing undeserved love. That love that commended itself to us and that while we were still enemies of God, he sent his son to die for us. Now it is the contemplation of my condition and that love that God demonstrated to me while I was in that condition that is to be the foundation of my new way of thinking. The old self would deceive us and have us believe deep down that there must have been something in me that God saw. I might not have even seen it myself, but God saw it. That there was something in me that influenced him to choose me. Something that was a little better than the guy next door whom he hasn't chosen. Is that not the way that we often think? I may not recognize it. Look, I recognize I am a sinner, but there must have been something in me that that God saw that made him choose me. 
Well, this is one of the most potent deceptions of the old way of thinking that we could have. The devil loves it. And he will encourage it in every way he can. He will give you reasons to think that way. He will even find scripture to support it. But God's word is absolutely clear. There is absolutely nothing, and I mean nothing, big zero, nothing, in you or in me that God should ever choose me. Without Christ, I am obnoxious to him. Even our very righteousnesses are as filthy rags in his sight. And I believe that the word used here for filthy rags is the same word that was used for the rags a woman would use at the time of her period. Even our righteous deeds, our best deeds, are disgusting in God's sight. Polluted as we are by sin. Like those things that disgust and are to be removed before they pollute and cause catastrophe. It is this contemplation of God's undeserved love that motivates to a new way of thinking. I think Augustus, top lady, captured something of the thought when he wrote, Nothing in my hands I bring. Nothing. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. And in love, he does. He washes me in his own blood, in his own sacrifice. It was the same wonder at undeserved grace that led Isaac Watts to write, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. To pour contempt on all his pride. And to throw away all those things that previously he had been so enticing to him. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. There's a new way of thinking. A new way of thinking. He is putting off the old way of self-interest and pride and putting on the new of humble recognition of God's redeeming love, of gospel truth. So then the first step towards this change is to contemplate the absolutely unmerited grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. And improving the will of God. The first genuine response of the gospel 
is gratitude. Hmm? What can I do to say thank you? Hmm? And the answer is in our text. Put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness, holiness and truth. Or to put it in another way as in Romans 12, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. To think the way that the Lord Jesus thought. Hmm? Now as soon as we start to talk about the will of God, we think of law. We go back to those do's and don'ts again. Obeying a list of commands. And of course, loving God doesn't involve discipline. We're not suggesting that it doesn't. But to limit to this is to fall far, far short of what is meant here. And the answer to that question is found in verse 1 of our chapter that we read together. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When I look at a brother or sister, and it's impossible in, in a gathering like this or in, in, in a wider church that there's not somebody who doesn't rub you up the wrong way. Hmm? Either by what they do, the way they rub their nose or whatever it is. But here, Paul's telling us that's not the way we look at them. Not anymore. We look at them as they are in Christ. You are, in spite of what I may see as bad habits or bad things, you are my brother, my sister in Christ. And that's the way I see you. That's the way I am to treat you. I am to love you as a brother and a sister in Christ. That is the unity about which Paul is speaking. That is the newness of thinking that Paul is encouraging us to as God's people. Oh, I hope that, <coughs> that you'd all come to think like I do. <laughs> but as a realist, I know you won't. But you are my brother if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are living your life in obedience to him, if you love him, whether you agree with me or not, you are my brother and my sister in the Lord. And that's the unity in the spirit that Paul speaks about. Paul makes it plain what he means in the letter to the Philippians when he says, have this attitude in yourselves which is also in Christ Jesus to be like him. This is the will of God for you. And so then as we begin the new year 
as we look at the year ahead of us. Let us determine to put on the new self, which in the likeness of God or the likeness of Christ has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth, not obeying a list of do's and don'ts, but as the chorus is, turning my eyes upon Jesus and looking full in his wonderful word where I find him, all about him and what he's done. And when I do that, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we see that the task ahead of us is not an easy one. It's hard to lay aside those things that clamour every hour of every day for our attention. The old appetites, the old way of thinking, the old self-assertion, the old self-centeredness. But, O oh God, our Father, we pray that you would help us to replace that with a new Christ-centeredness. With a love for him that leads us to desire to be like him. Because we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.